Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, after watching that introduction, it's like smoke in here, you know. <laughs> well, uh, a couple things. Uh, first thing is, uh, not only is, is family camp starting tomorrow and going through next weekend, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Also, uh, others of you have asked about Rwanda. Next weekend, we're giving a report on our mission trip to Rwanda. So uh, if you uh, liked an update on what happened there in June when we were there for time of ministry in the prisons, encourage you to come out next weekend to hear that report with all of the team from U.S. that went. So before we get into the message this morning, um, I'm sure by now most of you are aware of what happened in Aurora, Colorado this last week, the terrible tragedy that happened in that city. And so the Bible tells us that when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And I think it's fitting for us as a church family just to spend a few moments in prayer for those who were affected by this tragedy. So would you join me in prayer as we pray for that community? Lord, we are sobered by what happened in Colorado this past week and the tragedies that seem to be so daily in our world today. And, and Lord, as this community is suffering the loss of loved ones and those who are still in the hospital recovering, Lord, we pray that the comfort and peace of your Holy Spirit would reside upon those families and that community, that you would even redeem and bring hope and blessing out of all of this tragedy in the lives of those who have been affected. That they would reach out to you and find you to be their savior and their hope in time of trouble. For us here this morning, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds as we spend time with you and in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. I've entitled this two-part message, Walking the Walk in a Post-Modern World. And uh, my assignment has been to talk about chapters 4 and chapters 5. Last week, what we did is we did a little bit of a, a review and took a few more steps in our study. But again, to set, just to set the stage for a moment, if you look at the first three chapters of Ephesians, really what they're doing there is they're explaining in detail what God has done to restore our relationship with Him. All of the things that He did, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of their participation in saving us, forgiving us, redeeming us, and giving us the gift of eternal life. It's all described in chapters 1 through 3. That's the vertical dimension of our relationship with him. As good as all that is, we now in chapters 4 through 6 are assigned the task of walking it out. How then do you live in light of this newfound relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And so last week, we began in chapter 4, verse 1, and just looked at how Paul introduces the section. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's saying, now that you have heard all of this, therefore, he's now saying, please walk it out. Walk worthy of what God has done for you. So as you look through chapters 4 and 5, you're going to see the word walk several times in these two chapters. It's talking about now, how do we live out our relationship with God in relation to other people? So the first thing that he says is, he says, listen, I really want you as Christians to walk in unity in the first part of chapter four. He then challenges us to walk in holiness. 
and then to walk in forgiveness towards other people who will sin against us in this life. And so it's one thing to forgive people, but then he takes it a step further and says, not only do I want you to forgive them, I now want you to love them, even love your enemies. And then he concluded that section by saying, now also walk in the light. Live your lives in such a way that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That your lifestyle will not cause anyone to have a poor opinion of God and what it means to be Christian. Well, these are the first five steps that we take in our Christian walk. But today, in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, the Apostle Paul is now going to challenge us to take one more step, and that is to walk in wisdom. Let me read that passage. It goes like this. He says, in, beginning in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Paul begins this passage by saying that we need to walk circumspectly as wise people. And the reason he gives is because the days are evil. Now, this was written in the first century, and he is there describing that the first century was an evil day. And I'm convinced it's really not unlike the kind of time that we're living in in these last days. We're living in a day when truth is negotiable, morality is arbitrary, and self-indulgence is considered a virtue. In fact, Jesus actually told us that before he returned, he said the days would be like this. He said they would be like they were in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Well, what were those days like? In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and verse 11 and 12, God gives this summary statement of the condition of the world in Noah's day. He said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's quite an estimation. That's quite a summary that God is giving of, of the conditions in Noah's day. And can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah, a righteous man, to live in that evil day? In Genesis chapter 19, we see a description of the conditions in the city of Sodom. And that chapter tells us the men of Sodom were perverted, morally corrupt, and beyond hope of being redeemed, which is why God destroyed both Sodom and Gomorrah. And we really don't have to look too far in our day to see that our world is heading in that direction, filled with violence, corruption at every level. And God is saying to us, Jesus was saying, he said, look, these were the two examples in the Old Testament that you can look at to illustrate what it will be like in the last days. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah 
building this incredible vessel, this boat in his backyard. And he's not, you know, this is a project that took him 120 years to do. To complete this incredible ark to save the animals that lived on the earth at the time. And so he and his sons get out there every morning. They go to work on this project. And you can imagine the comments the neighbors were making. This guy has lost his marbles. He's building a boat saying there's a flood coming. And he's saying that it's going to rain. What's rain? They don't even know what rain is. It didn't rain before the flood. And so what was he doing during that time? How was he surviving? And then what about Lot? What was it like for him to live in that city of corruption? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, describe how these two men coped with their environment. It says there that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. I want to stop there for just a moment because as people were going by and mocking and you know, he's the laughing stock of the community. What's Noah doing? He's saying, judgment's coming. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways and repent and be righteous in the sight of God. He's a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, warning people of what's coming. And so the flood came upon the world of the ungodly, and, it turned, and God also turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. He was oppressed, he was tormented, living in his evil day. God delivered Lot. He delivered Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. They escaped the city. Actually, the angels had to drag them out of the city. Lot's wife didn't make it very far before she turned back and looked and became a pillar of salt. She died. Only three people made it. So as we think about our day, how do we then live? How do we walk the walk in this postmodern world where truth is now whatever you make it to be? Well, in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is telling us that the way to live is to walk circumspectly. Uh, that's an interesting word. It's not one that we typically use, but what does it mean? The word circumspectly in the Greek means to be exceedingly careful with each step you take. It means to take careful heed of your circumstances and the potential consequences of your actions. You could compare this to walking a tightrope, realizing one misstep could result in disastrous consequences. You have to walk very, very carefully today, don't you? Walking, walking circumspectly means we can't afford to look to the right or to the left and wander from the path God has ordained for our lives. It means we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus or else we'll lose our spiritual balance and be caught up in the passing pleasures of sin that always brings us untold shame, guilt, and painful consequences. Walk not as fools, but as wise. Walk circumspectly, carefully considering each step you take. So today we're all being presented with this challenge. How do we then live in an evil day? 
And the challenge that's facing all of us here today is basically you have one of two choices you can, you can make in life. You can, you can either live as a wise person or live as a fool. Now, a wise person, how does that person live? Well, a wise person says, mm, I am going to examine other people's lives. I'm going to watch how they live. And I'm going to see that if they make good choices, they have these good outcomes. And if they make bad choices, I see what happens there. And then that wise person is going to say, you know, I'm going to look into the owner's manual for life and see what God has to say about these decisions I'm considering. The book of Proverbs was actually written by a father who had the wisdom to sit down with his son. He said, oh, son, please listen. Listen to my words. Listen to my wisdom. The father is saying, you know, I've made some good choices and bad choices, and I'd really like to spare you from some of the bad ones, so would you listen to my counsel? He said, I've watched the fools. I've seen what they do, and I see what happens. I see the temptations and the snares out there, and I've seen where that leads. Son, would you listen? Would you listen to my words? I so want to spare you from that grief. So the wise person is going to take that to heart. They're going to sit down and they're going to really listen and say, you know what, I am going to accept, I'm going to accept what God says, I'm going to accept what I've learned from the lessons of life, and I will choose to avoid the things that I know will bring pain and heartache. The fool, on the other hand, what he says is, yes, I see all that, I hear all that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to check it out for myself. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. In fact, if you tell me what to do, I'll do the opposite. That's the definition of a fool. And Paul is saying, walk as wise people. Walk circumspectly. And he says, here's the first thing you can do is understand what the will of the Lord is. Figure out what God's will is. If you can do God's will, you are the wisest person that will ever live. Jesus lived that way. He said, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over and over again, Jesus said that. I didn't, I'm not here to do my own will. I'm doing the will of him who sent me. And at the end of his life, of his brief life of 33 years, he said, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I've glorified you on the earth. What a testimony of a life well lived. So we're being challenged to walk in wisdom. And the first step is Understand what the will of the Lord is. Secondly, he says, don't, don't pursue drunkenness. I find that curious that he put that here. But it really makes sense when you stop to think about it because if you're living in an evil day, you're living in a world of frustration, vexation, your righteous soul is being tormented, and you're feeling oppressed, what's the tendency that we have when we feel that way? I just need an escape. I just want to tune out and somehow anesthetize the pain, if just for a moment. But Paul's saying, listen, if you do that, if you give place to that, you go into some self-indulgent thing, you just open the door towards destruction. You just weaken your willpower and resolve to know what God's will is, and you've invited some consequence into your life you'll later regret. God is telling us that in this evil day, the only spirit we are to be filled with is the Holy Spirit. He says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. He also goes on to say, instead of becoming embittered by life, be thankful for what you do have. 
Make melody in your hearts with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Instead of becoming rebellious and cynical toward authority, we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. Boy, it's so easy to become cynical today, isn't it? You look around at the, the leadership of the world and the countries, and we think, oh, boy, they're, they're not bright hope on that horizon. It's easy to become cynical. It's easy to become rebellious, unsubmitted, anarchy. Paul says, don't go there. Be humble, be submitted, be wise. Figure out what God's will is for your life. That's just the introduction. That's, Paul is just now warming up in his message. So am I. Because now what he's going to do is he's going to make a transition in this passage. And he's now going to say, let's figure out what this looks like in the three most difficult human relationships you can have on planet Earth. We're going to start with marriage. And then we're going to talk about parenting once you get that figured out. And if you get those two, well, let's talk about what happens at the workplace. He talks about slaves and masters, employers and employees in chapter 6. Well, I won't bring all of that to you. I'm just going to talk about one this morning, and that's marriage. How do you walk in wisdom in marriage? And that, by the way, is the first relationship he addresses. And why? Because it is the most difficult of the three. There is no other more intimate relationship on planet Earth than the relationship between a husband and wife in marriage. So he starts with the toughest one. In verses 22 to 33, this is what the description... By the way, before I read this, I want you to know this is God's blueprint for a blessed marriage. Okay? This... Okay, wives, he's going to tell you three things. Husbands, you three things. He's going to keep it simple because he knows we can't comprehend a list of 20 or 30 things. It's just too much. So he's just going to give us three each. And he's describing, he says, this is how I invented and designed a marriage to work. So here we go. Wives, aren't you glad he started with them? <laughs> now, you may want to circle a few words as we go through this because <clears throat> you may feel like something rises up within you, but that's okay. We'll get over it. All right, wives, that's the next word, submit. Submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, in light of that, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands once in a while. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I did say in everything. Oh, no. Husbands, okay, your turn. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever has, has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. You might want to circle those two words, guys. Just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
He's quoting from Genesis 2. That's where a marriage was invented. And God's statement back then is the purpose and design of marriage is that two become one. And I don't just mean physically. I mean body, soul, and spirit. One. That's the blueprint. This is a great mystery, he says. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, boy, aren't you glad you came to church? Uh, here we go. Well, this is the blueprint. And what God is going to do here is he's helping us to try to comprehend something that's really difficult and subjective at times. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us a physical object lesson to explain how this thing works. And he's using the human body as the analogy, as the model. And so let's take a moment and think about what, how God has designed the body to function. And as we think of the body, we're now describing the function and role of a wife. First of all, the rather most obvious thing here is that the body supports and upholds the head. That makes sense. I have a head. I have a physical body. What is my body doing right now? Well, the head is connected to the body, and the body is supporting and upholding the head. Pretty basic. God says that's the way I designed the wife to function in the marriage relationship. She supports her husband. Number two, the body senses things the head doesn't. Okay, so the body is aware of hunger. It even makes noise when it's hungry. The body is aware of its immediate surroundings. If the body bumps into something, if the body gets injured... Uh, the body is aware of some things. It sends nerve impulses up to the brain and it says, we got a problem down here. The body communicates its needs with the head. The body is aware of its immediate surroundings. The body submits to the instructions of the head. So if I am going to tell my left hand to rise upward and hold it there, then uh, my body, I've never seen this happen where my body all of a sudden says, well, let's talk about this. I'm not so sure I feel like that right now. No, it does what my brain tells it to do. There's no argument. There's no debate. Am I speaking to anybody here? All right. Well, let's go on to the husband, as the wife's thinking, oh, praise God. <laughs> the head senses the thing, things the body doesn't. For example, if you look at your head, it has the ability to see. It has eyes and ears. The body does not. I so appreciated Pastor James talking about his house and his children that are coming home. What a perfect object lesson. What was his wife concerned about? James. I need you to waterproof the walls in the basement. Why? These babies are coming whole. Water, moisture, mold, sickness. I cannot have these babies sick. Go waterproof the basement. That's an immediate concern, right? It's all about the mother taking care of those babies. That's how the body is designed. It's immediate stuff. What's James thinking about? College in 20 years. He's probably not even aware of the basement. He hasn't been down there in a month. He doesn't know what's down there. She does. Hmm. I hope there's not too many bruised ribs here this morning before we leave. The head provides for the needs of the body. 
Okay, so the body gets injured, there's a cut, there's bleeding there. Okay, the head makes a decision, we need to go get some stitches there, get some antibiotics, get a shot, get band-aids and whatever it takes to make that right. So the, bed, the head knows about some of these needs and is supposed to take care of those. The head processes information and makes decisions the body carries out. The head is aware of things in the distance, in the future. Talked about that. The head leads and directs the body concerning the safety and needs of the body in the process. So... The head says, let's go bungee jumping off of a bridge. The body says, are you kidding? I am scared of that. That doesn't seem like a good thing to do. So the, the head, if it's smart, is going to have to really consider. Let's see, that could be really dangerous if we do that. Maybe I better listen to some of those fears and concerns here. Well, as we look at these two functions, if we look at the human body, God is saying, now, listen, husbands, wives, pay attention to how your body is connected. It's all tied together. And everyone has, everybody has a function. Every part has a unique design. He says, that's the way I design marriage. And you're really wise if you figure this out. First of all, some insights. The body and the head aren't designed to function independently from one another. Well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> If the head was somehow dismembered from the body, uh, it'd be a little tough to get around, you know? And so that wouldn't work. The body without a head, let's see, we're going to be running into walls. We don't know where we're going. They were designed and created by God to function as a unit. Secondly, the body and head are designed to function as a team with each part valuing the contribution of the other. Now this gets a little tricky right here. Sometimes we think that our roles in a marriage as a husband and wife, that one is somehow superior, the other inferior. There is no such suggestion of that in Scripture. Submission does not mean inferiority. Differences in roles and responsibility is the next thing. The body and the head have different roles and responsibility. The body does things the head can't. The head does things the body can't. Well, why would we say that one is more important than the other? It, it can't happen that way. Listen, it's designed each part to function in a particular and unique way. It's not a competition. The wife is not inferior. The husband's not superior because he's the head. No, each one is absolutely essential to the functioning of the relationship. So if I'm really smart, I'm going to be checking in with my wife. And I'm going to be asking questions like, what do you sense the Lord is saying? What are you hearing? Did you know that she hears and knows things that I don't because she's my wife? The body is going to pick up on stuff that I'm clueless about? So I'm really smart. If I check in and say, you know, what do you think the Lord's saying about this decision? Is this a good choice? Is this a good decision? She's going to know things about children, our children, that I will be clueless about. And so I check in and I ask these questions because I want her input. It's a tough thing, though, to submit, I mean, for her, because as we're going to see, that's a, that's a real test of faith for her. So, how do we walk in wisdom in our marriage? Let me give you four things. Number one, 
To walk in wisdom in marriage means that we understand God's purpose when he invented it in the first place. One of the things that uh, Kathy and I enjoy doing is uh, spending time with young couples who are wanting to get married. They're in premarital counseling, and we require that here at this church. Nobody gets married here until they have gone through at least six weeks of premarital counseling. We want to make sure that they're ready and they're prepared and they know what they're getting into. So the first thing that I... Um, I make sure to mention to the men who come in and we talk, and I say, now listen, the reason God invented marriage is because, number one, he said it is not good for man to be alone. Let me try and explain what I think God is saying there. First of all, we're built for a relationship, not only with God, but with each other. And he knew that we as men needed a helper that was comparable to us. So he invented woman. And he brought the two together, Adam and wife. He says, now you two become one. You become one. But this next thing that I share with them causes them some pause because they never imagined that God had this in mind. And that is this, that God's purpose in marriage was to conform us to Christ's image through the conviction we bring to one another. You see, as a single person, I actually knew this. I actually knew this when I was about 18. I realized I needed to get married. And the reason I knew this is because I was keenly aware of the fact that I could keep everybody in my life at just the appropriate distance. I only let people get just as close as I wanted to, and I was making sure to project the image that I wanted them to see. And even more concerning is I would even do that with God. I said, God, you can mess with this stuff, but this is off limits over here. And I realized that I could keep everybody at a safe distance and they wouldn't get too close to me. And so we got married. <laughs> and something very surprising happened. All of a sudden, I realized that now someone had invaded my space. And I couldn't get away with anything anymore. See, as a single person, I could throw my dirty clothes on the floor, and bam, they might stay there all week. Now, uh, how come you're not, what are these clothes here on the floor? Well, those are my dirty clothes. Uh, the hamper's over here. Oh, and by the way, do you know that the toilet paper, the, it goes over the top, not down the back. <laughs> and the toothpaste, we squeeze that, not from the middle, but from the end. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, this wasn't in the marriage manual. I didn't read this part. Where does that come in? So all of a sudden, all these things that I could get away with before, not so much anymore. Well, that inevitably led to some kind of resentment because now some things that I didn't want anybody to see, they're out in the open. I can't hide this anymore. And so number three, I had to learn that my wife was not the enemy. But she was now, listen, I call her the scalpel. That in God's hands, she is this instrument that exposes the things in our heart, in my heart that nobody else could see. Now you notice in parentheses, I have the word children there. 
Because if, we're, if we do manage to cover up anything, when the children come along, they'll show it all. They'll expose it all. They, they will, there'll be these little mirrors walking around, and they'll have these attitudes, and you can't figure out where that came from. Guess what? Look in the mirror, dude. It came from you. Where'd they learn to have that selfishness and that attitude? Where'd they learn to talk like that? Um, guess what? God says, this is what I see, and I want you to make sure to see it too. And the reason I want you to see it is so that I can redeem that. I can deliver you from that. Are you interested? I don't like people messing with my stuff. I don't like people telling me I can't do this or do that. I don't want to sacrifice and serve. Get over it. That's what God designed this thing. It's, it, it's the way he designed marriage to be. Number two, that means that marriage will be hard work. Marriage is going to be a hard job. You'll, you're going to offend one another. Your sins will be exposed every day. And you'll have to humble yourselves daily, confess your faults to one another, ask for forgiveness and forgive one another. You know that just kind of grates against something in us? <sighs> Happily ever after, how are we doing? Whoa, this is hard work. That was the biggest shock of my life. I honestly, and you'll have to forgive me for this, but honestly, in my mind as a 20-year-old, I was seeing, you know, here it is. I'll give the picture. There's the bridge. It's an arch. And these two are in a rowboat sailing under the arc off into the sunset, happily ever after. On day one, I'm thinking, where did that picture go? Nobody told me about hard work and that this is going to get messy and there's offenses and stuff like that. Oh. Number three. I share with these folks, we have to understand that oneness will require submission and sacrifice. The wife must submit to the imperfect leadership of her husband. It's one thing to submit to Jesus and call him Lord because he's, after all, perfect and sinless in love. It's another thing for a wife to submit to her husband because he's not perfect. He's in process. And 1 Peter 3 tells us that a woman's greatest challenge in marriage is a four-letter word. It is the word fear. She's afraid of her, for her safety. She's afraid of the consequences of the decisions her husband will make, how it will affect her, how it's going to affect the children. He wants to go out and buy that. How are we going to buy food next week if you do that? Fear is the biggest challenge a wife is going to experience in a relationship. It's going to be hard to submit. Which means that she really has to trust the Lord. And deepen her faith in him to work through her husband. The, my, the wife has to learn that her... Oh, I love this one. Um, I, ask, uh, I ask the uh, ladies. I say, you know, what do you think your, husband's, your future husband's greatest need is? <laughs> she says, yeah, I know what it is. No, no, it's not what you think. No, 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 no. It's not what you think. A husband's greatest need is to be honored and respected in private and in public, even if he fails. Remember, the body does what? It supports the head. It holds it up. The husband's greatest need is he needs to feel honored and respected. 
He needs to know that no matter what happens, she will stay by his side. She will back him up. She will defend and she will stand with her, her husband no matter what. And she's not going to be getting together with the other ladies and saying, yeah, you ought to hear what my husband did last. No, no, no. Listen, your marriage is a sacred thing. It's a private thing. Don't dishonor it by gossiping about it and telling on each other. We don't, this is something sacred. So I'm never going to run her down and she's not going to do that for me. I wouldn't be loving for me to do that for her and it wouldn't be respectful to me. The wife must allow her faith in God to be greater than her fears and her husband's failures. You know, the example that is given in 1 Peter 3 is Sarah. Sarah had a tough assignment. Abraham, mm, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, that guy. There was two times in his life that he made some real blunders. He was a great man of faith on, except on two occasions. He moved down there to Egypt and he told his wife, Sarah, he said, now Sarah, listen, I want you to pretend that you're my sister and not my wife. Because if, if Pharaoh sees you, you're a beautiful woman, and if he knows that you're married to me, he'll probably kill me so he can have you. So just tell him uh, that you're my sister so it will go well with me. What a dumb thing to suggest. But you know, the Bible does not record a single word of argument that she had with him. She submitted, even calling him Lord. She ended up in Pharaoh's household. That's a consequence. That was something that she had to, that was a scary moment. But here's the upside of the story. On both occasions when Abraham did this, once with Pharaoh, once with Abimelech, both times that king found out, God revealed to that king what Abraham had done. The king rebuked Abraham and said, what in the world were you thinking? I could have sinned against God if, you, if this had happened. And not only did God use a king to rebuke Abraham, but he delivered Sarah, and there was a blessing that came to the family as a result of her submission. The husband. The husband must learn to put his wife's needs before his own. That's what it means to sacrifice and to serve. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give. My life is a ransom for many. Husbands, that's your assignment too. So your wife's needs, more important than yours. The husband must dwell with his wife according to knowledge, understanding how she thinks, feels, and what she means when she communicates what is important to her. There's some chuckling in here, is there? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I've learned from 40 years of experience. And it took me 10 years to figure this out. See, I I asked I asked the young men the same question. I asked him, I said, what do you think your wife's greatest need is? And you know what he normally thinks? Okay, I gotta go out and get a job, get a house, get a car, get all the nice stuff, and then she'll be happy. Let me just clue you guys, that is not on her list. She doesn't want what you can do for, you, for her. She wants you. And here's how she wants you. She wants you to sit down on the couch and no remote 
and she wants to talk and have you listen. <laughs> and not stare out, in the wind, out, out the window, off somewhere else. She wants you to be all there, attentive, listening, and hearing her heart. Her deepest needs and feelings. And I will confess this to you that as a husband I have struggled with this. And it's only been in the last 10 years that I figured out how to ask, ask a really important question. She'll go on and talk and, you know, and I'm being barraged with stuff. And I'm thinking, okay, can I ask one question here before you go on? Are you wanting me to fix something? <laughs> or do you need me to be a good listener right now? And she'll say, I just need you to listen. I just need somebody, I need to hear myself talk and hear myself think and I just need you to be listening and all there for me. Okay, okay, I got that. I won't fix anything. What, what happens is if I try to solve a problem she's not asking me to fix, it only makes her matter. <laughs> but you see, I'm the head. I'm trying to solve problems. The body's talking to me and I'm thinking, okay, I'm on. I'm in. Tell me, I, I'm ready to go. No, just listen. Oh. Are you kidding me? Oh, hey, guys, one more step. Not only does she want you to listen, she wants to hear your heart too. <laughs> How do you feel? What do you think? Oh, uh, I haven't had a feeling in a week. What are you telling me? Are you kidding me? I'm having way too much fun here. <laughs> Okay, okay. so listen, guys. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. The body is different from the head. You think differently. Your needs are different. Get a clue. Figure out where they're coming from and, and learn to appreciate and value that. You know, if you do that, it'll be a lot easier for her to respect you because she'll truly feel loved and cherished. I'm seeing these wives going. Oh. <laughs> Here's the last one. The husband must learn that his wife needs to feel that she is the most important person in his life and that she is loved above all else, including hobbies and private pursuits. She needs to know that she has no rival. No rivals. And the last point is, husbands, we need to understand the importance of keeping our marriage relationship current. What do I mean by that? Listen, I, I hate to say this, but look, every day, every week, we're going to mess up. We're going to offend each other. We're going to say things and, you know, we're going to be misunderstood, misinterpreted. Offenses are just a part of the deal. But I, know, I, I don't know any other way... Uh, how a marriage can succeed without these two things, honesty, humility, and confession of one's faults. It's not optional. We gotta be 100% accountable for our stuff. Don't worry, God will deal with their stuff. You take care of your stuff. Where, where you've been wrong, admit it, humble yourself, confess it, own up to it, way better off. Secondly, asking and receiving forgiveness for every offense is essential. This is God's blueprint. This is how he shapes us and conforms us to the image of Christ is through this. 
Now, I, you've been very patient listening to me share all these great insights from Ephesians, but listen, I know that pictures last longer, so I'm going to do this in picture form. A picture means more than a thousand words. And so here we have this happy couple. There they are on the highway of life. They just said, I do. They're madly in love, and they think, yippee. I am just going to have so much fun. And so there they are. They're going down the highway of life, two becoming one, converging off in the distance, and they're pursuing God. But then something terrible begins to happen on day one of the marriage. They never saw this coming, but offenses show up. This guy's a slob. She doesn't cook like my mom. Guys, don't ever say that. <laughs> that is verboten. That's anathema. Don't ever compare her to your mother. I will run the other way if I'm in your company and you say something like that. I'm out of there. So offenses, these happen. They come up. And that's not just one, but then they come in droves, one after the other. And as a young couple, we are clueless about what to do with them. We just, we, we get, we go from happy to frustrated to sad. The poor woman's pulling out her hair. And this guy, finally, he says, it's kind of like Adam. God, it's this woman you gave me. Pointing the finger everywhere else. And they can't see each other anymore because of the wall of offenses that stands between them. So they're stuck. But thank God, as Christians, God has given us the remedy to deal with that. You have to humble yourself. You have to look honestly at that and say, yep, that's my stuff. I sinned against you. Uh, so they begin to deal with that. They begin to forgive each other, humble each other, themselves, and they, they confess their faults. And look, they're happy again. And once again, they're madly in love and heading towards God. Isn't that a great picture? Listen, this is the real stuff of how it works. You can either do it God's way or your own way. And, you know, it, honestly, it doesn't work out when we make it up as we go. This is the blueprint right here. And Paul is saying, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom in your marriage. Let me give you one sentence that we use and practice about every week. And I require these premarital couples to repeat this to me every time they come in. And these are the words. Honey, I was wrong. We kind of choke on the word wrong. It's hard for us to actually verbalize that. We try to substitute words like sorry. Mm, not so much ownership there. Actually claim I was wrong. Name the specific offense that was committed. Because listen, when I sin against my wife, she knows exactly what the offense is and she's really wanting me to know, do you know what you did? And I'm trying to figure it out and make sure I cover it all because if I don't get it all, she'll say, eh, not quite yet. And keep working at it. Okay, help me out here. What have I done? Well, it was this, 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 this. And I did it. I'm wrong. Will you please forgive me? I make sure and put it in the form of a question because if she says, yes, I know we're good. The brick has been removed, and we're keeping our relationship account current. We don't have a relationship debt. The last thing I want to say is this. I read the signs every day of anything that has disrupted our oneness, and I aggressively pursue the problem until I find out the root cause. 
I can walk into our house and she can be in the other end of the house and I've learned after nearly 40 years there's something in the atmosphere. Something happened and so I say, okay, how was your day? I'm checking with the body here. I can tell by your body language, who did you talk to? What happened today? And I pursue it until I figure it out. And then guys, let me give you this clue. The best thing you can ever do to your wife is at the end of it all say, honey, can I pray for you? Oh my gosh, you will have points that'll last the rest of the week. Because she wants you to be the spiritual head that covers her and prays for her and supports her in this relationship. She wants to know that I care. I nourish, I cherish, I love sacrificially. That's the blueprint. That's the way God's designed this thing to work. This is walking in wisdom in marriage. I'm still in, I'm still in the process. I mess up every week, but I'm committed to keep working on it every, every day. And I, before I pray, I, I just want to say this. I know that some of you are here and it didn't work out so well. For whatever reason, but I want to say this, God knows. It takes two to have a marriage that works, not just one. So one person can be working all they can and to do all the right stuff, but it also takes the other person cooperating. And I know in this fallen world of ours, sometimes it doesn't work that way. But I'm glad that God is a gracious and redeeming God and gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. He's still doing that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have shown us from the scriptures how you designed life, how you designed marriage. And Lord, I pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in wisdom, to believe that what you said is true and it's right and it's good, that God, we would embrace this even though it's hard work. Lord, help us to walk in wisdom in our marriage. And Lord, that our marriages would become a testimony to future generations and to the world around us. So God, we thank you for the things that, you've heard, that we've heard today, the ways that we've been challenged. And Lord, I just pray for every marriage here today that's represented in this room, that God, you would just encourage each one and help us to keep pressing on to becoming not only one with you, but with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.